Lord God, Heavenly Father, on this day that we celebrate the naming of Jesus, we thank you that his name is the name that saves us. For the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And so we bow our knee and we confess him to be our Lord. We confess him to be the Christ, the Son of God. And through that faith, you promise to give us life. And so we trust in you for all good things. As we continue to celebrate the birth of our Savior, we ask that he would once again take residence in our heart as his manger, as his place where he lies his head, that we might be blessed by his presence, that we might be blessed by his salvation. And so, Lord, give us now your spirit as we read these words of John. May they continue to point us to Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so John chapter 1. This is, um, this, yeah, this is John 1. It's the prologue. So remember in the Gospel of John, the prologue, as it's commonly known, is John 1, 1 to 18. What that means is these verses kind of introduce the Gospel. The story of the Gospel itself doesn't start until 119. Just like when we studied Genesis, I talked a lot about character and plot and, and all those kind of things, how they're, they're actually written as a story. And remember, when we read Genesis 1, there were no characters. Remember that? In Genesis 1, there's no characters. There's just God and generic world, right? But in Genesis 2, all of a sudden, God has a name, the man has a name, the woman has a name, right? And, and we meet other characters and then going into Genesis 3. Well, say, and so we talk about Genesis 1 being kind of this overview or prologue. Well, same thing's true in the Gospel of John. In John 1, 1 to 18, there isn't narrative. We actually do meet characters, but there's no actual narrative yet. Um, the, the telling of a story really begins with 119. Okay? Now, the, the weird thing is, having said that, some people like to say the prologue is actually just verses 1 through 5 because in verse 6 we actually do meet a guy named John. So some people think verses 1 through 5 is, is kind of the prologue, but, but we'll get to verse 18 and I'll show you why that's actually the end of the prologue and how it leads into the narrative itself. So we last week we went through verses 1 through 5 and we, we ended our discussion talking about the fact that in verses 4 and 5, we read that, that in Jesus, in this word, is life and light. And this light shines in the darkness and no darkness can overcome this light. Which also implies that no death can overcome this life. Right? And this will be a major theme in John's gospel, is that no death can overcome this life. So the life that is in Christ is the life that is stronger than death. And there is no other life that is stronger than death. Life outside of Christ, death will conquer. Right? Yeah? Hello? Yeah? If you're not in Christ, what happens after you die? You die some more. It's called the second death. If you die where you're in Christ, what happens? You live forever. It's called eternal life. Right? So that's what John is saying, is that the life that is in Christ cannot be conquered by death. So Jesus walks up to Lazarus' tomb and he says, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And Martha goes, well, uh, Lazarus, dead. She doesn't say that, but she should have. And Jesus says, yeah, but I am the resurrection and the life, right? See, if you're in Christ, death can't win. If you're in Christ, darkness can't win. If you're in Christ, sin can't win. If you're in Christ, Christ wins. And so you get what he has. Life, light, forgiveness, fellowship with God. You get that. You get righteousness, all of that, right? 
This is what Galatians 3 today in, in our service is talking about, is that when you're baptized, you put on Christ, and so whatever Christ is, you now get. Susan. If you don't die in Christ, don't you, aren't you eternally damned? Yeah, that's what I just said. That's eternal, right? Yeah. So after you die, you get to die again. What's that? It's a bad life, but isn't it? You're being, you would exist. That's not life. That's death. Existing apart from God is not life. It is death. Actually, yeah. Death is not the cessation of of life. Okay. It's it's not being alive. Really weird. Yeah, so so we do not there is no biblical teaching that after death people stop existing. You don't there's no out clause. You don't either go to heaven or just stop existing. In scripture, everyone exists for all of eternity. You either exist in life with God or in separation from God, which is death and suffering. And there's lots of metaphors for that, right? Hell. Fire, brimstone, cold, all those kind of things. Not good. I think maybe along that line, one of the things that is confusing or difficult for us is we see someone who's not in Christ but appears to have life. Uh-huh. That's probably not helpful to think that way because they don't have life if they're not in Christ. Well, okay. You mean like now? Well, that's what I'm saying. So when they, we're seeing life as... So some dude dies, right, and they're not in Christ, and you go to the memorial service at the funeral home, and they say, oh, he was so full of life. Well, was he? Yes. And the life that he had was life in Christ. But the problem is, because he's not in Christ, when he dies, there's no resurrection into that life for eternity because... He's separated from Christ. Now he will die a second death. But remember this. We talked about this last week too. Is that, oh, I should have never done that. Because of this, now all creation receives life from God as a gift because of Christ. Every person you know is breathing because of Christ. God is now a benevolent creator because of Christ. They're receiving gifts, life, food, shelter. They're receiving all those as gifts from God because of Christ. The problem is they're living as though that's not the case. And so when they die, they will not live in Christ. They will be separated from God for eternity. And they'll be like, wait, where did, what? Because this is, this is kind of the issue is that what we want to see is that all good gifts come down from... You guys don't know that verse. All right, go to James. Book of James. People think Lutherans don't read James, but I did, so... It's after Hebrews. So get through all the letters of Paul. Romans, 1st, 2nd, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st, 2nd, Thessalonians, 1st, 2nd, Timothy, Titus, Philemon, and then Hebrews, and then James. Okay, so it's towards the end of the New Testament. James 1. I think it's, I feel like it's 17. Is that correct? Yeah, there it is. James 1, 17. You can't rip James out of the Bible. Well, no. Not literally. When L was little. Yeah, it happens. Page the pages are a little flimsy sometimes. <laughs> Okay, James 1.17. This is a a good verse to kind of know. Let's go and read that, please. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, from whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Okay, so anything good in this world is from God, the Father. Okay, and why is God the Father benevolent toward His creation? 
because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Okay? So in that way, people are alive because of Christ. But the problem is, when they're not in Christ, when they're not baptized into Christ, when they're not in Christ through faith, they don't know that, and that life is now passing. Whereas those who are in Christ, that life is eternal. Does that make sense? Kind of? It's hard to get your mind around. This is why people often say there's no difference between Christians and non-Christians. And you say, not yet. Right? It doesn't appear as there is right now, as though there is right now, but there is. You just can't see it right now. God gives his gifts equally, right? God clothes and feeds and shelters equally. If that weren't true, then the only people in the hospitals would be unbelievers. Right? But good and faithful Christians get sick every day. And, and very evil unbelievers are prosperous every day. And those are from God. Okay? I mean, that's reality. It's kind of, that's the way it works. It's what God says. He just gives gifts. Okay? I'm just going to say, be very careful judging eternal things. Because what we see, God's, God sees it all. That's why, that's why this book teaches us how to see. Because my eyes don't see it. I have to be told what I'm looking at. Which is actually a major theme in the Gospel of John we're going to get to, is that believing teaches you how to see. Okay? Believing teaches you how to see. Not the other way around. You don't see in order to believe. You believe so you can learn how to see. If you think you can see, you're blind. But if you realize you're blind, then you will learn how to see. John chapter 9. Okay, the healing of blind man. Okay, any other questions on that? Susan, did that help? Yes. Kind of? Yes. Okay, good. Okay, so, but the, the point of so far in, in John 1, verses 1 through 5, is that this word, capital W, word, which we know is Jesus, is God, is divine. This is not less than God. He is not something that is just human. He is in every way fully God and equal to the Father. Okay? So Jesus is fully God, equal to the Father, but not the Father. Right? Remember in John 1, there is a difference between the two? Okay? So that's the point so far of John 1, 1 to 5. Any questions on that? Number one. Okay, so number one. Let's read verses 6 through 13. That's a big chunk. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Okay, thank you very much. All right, number one. Why was John sent from God? <coughs> to bear witness about the light. Now, this is crazy important. Who, which John is this? Is this the author of the gospel? No, this is John the Baptist, okay? John the baptizing dude. He's not a Baptist. He's not Southern Baptist or anything, right? He's just the baptizing guy. So John the baptizing guy, I call him John the baptizer. Um, 
John was sent as a witness. Now, what does a witness do? Testifies truly, right? A witness tells the truth. And what we're going to find out in the Gospel of John is we've got to figure out who's telling us the truth and who's lying to us. This is a major question in this book. Who's telling you the truth? And if they're telling the truth, if they are true witnesses, then their words will be the same, this is important, as Scripture. And remember, the Gospel of John, what is Scripture? The Old Testament. The Old Testament. Okay? So what you're going to find out in this Gospel is that there are certain characters who speak and when they speak, it has the same authority as Holy Scripture. In the first half of the Gospel, his name is John. Okay? He goes until chapter 10. At the end of 10, he's gone. And then we have to look for the character in the second half of the Gospel. And it's not until chapter 20, verse 28, that we finally get him. His name is Thomas. And his testimony is when he looks at Jesus and says, My Lord, my God. And Jesus says, Blessed. So that's reliable testimony. Now, what you're going to find, though, is there's someone else in this gospel who every word he speaks is Scripture. Who's that? Jesus. Okay? So what the point we're going to read is that when Jesus speaks, he's actually speaking Scripture. Every word of Jesus is the same authority as the Scriptures. And that's how you're supposed to listen to him. So when he says, I am the resurrection and the life, you can believe it because that's God's word. Right? So part of the point of the gospel is who do you believe? And what John is saying in the prologue is John sent someone to be his witness and that someone is John. Now John is going to serve as the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophets. He's going to be the guy that kind of incorporates the entire Old Testament prophetic group into one person. So he's the end. He's the last one of those. And he's going to be replaced then by New Testament witnesses that are going to be the apostles, the twelve. John and the apostles, and Thomas is going to serve as our kind of example of that, are all going to bear witness to one thing. Jesus. So if you want to know who's telling you the truth, they're going to be telling you the same things that Jesus tells you. That's how you know. If they're telling you something else, then they are not speaking a witness from God. They are a witness from Satan. Okay, so this is the point of John chapter 8 and chapter 10. And chapter 9 is a physical example of that in the middle of them. John chapter 8, they accuse Jesus of being a blasphemer. And he says, I'm just speaking of my father. And they say, well, you're a child with, you're an illegitimate child. You don't have a father, which is really kind of them to tell him that. And he says, I have a father, but you don't know him. And they say, well, our father is Abraham's. And they're like, no. He's like, no. If, if Abraham was your father, you would agree with me because my father is Abraham's God. And they're like, well, who do you think our father is then? And he says, your father is a father of lies. Who's that? Satan. 
So he's accusing all of those who don't believe in him to have a father, but not God. Their father is Satan. Okay? That kind of stuff will get you killed. So it does. Okay, so number, so, oh boy. So we're still at number one. Now, what I want you to realize is that it says in verse six, there was a man sent from God. That word right there, sent, is the word apostle. That's the Greek word apostolos, okay? Or apostello is the, is the verb form. So that is the word for apostle. So this is, like I said, it's kind of setting up this idea that God's apostles in the New Testament are going to be these witnesses. Listen to them. Okay? So listen to them. Now, where do you find the words of the apostles? Where do you find them? Where in the Bible? The New Testament. The New Testament is considered the apostolic word. Where do you find the words of the prophets? The Old Testament. There it's considered the prophetic word. Okay? So if, if you were in church at early service, we sang the Te Deum, right? That the apostles and the prophets praise you. That's the way of saying the New Testament and the Old Testament. If you didn't go to early service, go to late service, you'll sing the Te Deum, you'll catch it. Okay? You also hear the noble army of martyrs. Remember, martyr is a Greek word for witness, right here. That's what this word is, is martyr. Okay, so number two. Who is the focus? Right, it's Jesus. So John came, but not to focus on himself. He came to focus on Jesus. Now, here's the thing though. All of us who are called to focus on Jesus, are we the point? No. Is our focus on Jesus the point? No. Is our witness the point? No. What's the point? Jesus. We have to fight this at every turn. We're always trying to make something else the focus other than Jesus. We're always trying to make us the focus other than Jesus or our actions the focus instead of Jesus or our theology or our sin or our whatever. But you know what? There, the scriptures refuse to concede to those agendas. The focus is always and only Jesus. Okay? So you don't read the scriptures and say, how do I fit into this? Because the answer is, you only fit in through Jesus. I'm not a very good American. Right. Which is why we have to fight this all the time. Because our entire lives are teaching us to interpret everything with the question of how does this affect me? Or how is this about me? Or what do I do? But the entire movement of our faith is away from me and to Jesus. Right? When it is time to determine your eternal reality, do you want the focus to be on you? And how you've done? Or do you want it to be all about Jesus and what he gives? Which is it? Do you want God to decide your eternal future based on your sin and how you've performed in, in terms of righteousness and his will? Or do you want your eternal reality determined on what Jesus has done? So how did we get to the point where we become the measuring stick and not God and not Jesus? <sighs> <laughs> Back in the yeah, I mean, there's, there's a couple different ways to look at that. The, the easy answer is this is Genesis chapter 3 when, when Satan tempted um, Adam and Eve to look at themselves instead of God and to seek knowledge outside of God. But 
from a from a more American point of view, it really uh, hmm, it really goes back to fundamentally for us the individualism goes back to Rene Descartes and the Enlightenment. Remember that in the Enlightenment, so we're talking the seven the seventeenth century, the sixteen hundreds, right? It was a product of the Renaissance, of the Reformation thinking, of that. And what happened in all that is, instead of God becoming the definition of reality, the definition of reality and the, the instantiation, the, the place where you find reality rooted, was moved from God to each individual person. Right, so Descartes said, Scott? I think, therefore, I am. So what Descartes said is, is, and this is a little unfair, like all philosophies, you kind of label them and just pretend they said all these weird things. But what Descartes said that was interpreted and became kind of the lifeblood of philosophy was that the only thing I can know is my existence. That's entirely the opposite of what Luther said. Luther said, the only thing I can know is God. And Western society has become the product of a Cartesian mindset, right? Where we now believe that the individual person is the starting point for reality. And this has infiltrated Christianity so much so that you read the Bible this way. You think this way about salvation. We think think this through. Listen to American Christianity. What's the important thing in American Christianity? I asked Jesus into my heart and now I am saved. Find that in the New Testament. Go ahead, please, read the whole thing several times. See if you ever find that. Because you won't. The New Testament is written about Jesus, and when it comes to humans, it's about all y'all. Not me. But a body. A group. So here's the problem. In American Christianity... So you hear this all the time. You guys know this. It's, it's, it's just become almost cliche now. I'm spiritual, just not religious. I don't need to go to church to worship Jesus. I can find Jesus in my boat. And what's the proper response to that? No, the proper response is, but where's the body of Christ? I'm not asking whether or not Jesus can show up wherever he wants. I'm asking where's his body? See, we're called to be part of his body. Not me and Jesus. You're never called to be an individual believer in the New Testament. Nowhere in the New Testament is it like what really matters is your individual faith. Never. The entire New Testament is what Christ has done and those who believe are his body, his church. And you get to be a member of that group. You know what the biggest crisis in American Christianity is? How to convince people they should go to church. Because if it's just me and Jesus, I don't need to go to church. I can read my Bible at home. So what do they say? We need to come together so we can praise and people go, oh, cool. So uh, we'll get together because you can praise better because there's a bigger band and it's louder and it's more exciting. And then after a couple weeks, it's not really that exciting. As a matter of fact, it's just really bad 90s music with stupid words that don't make any sense. And what happens? They have to keep inventing things to make people come. So instead of saying that worship is all about what God has done, what it do is I think mean, worship is all about what, what I do for God. 
So you go to worship and you praise God and then you learn how to be a better Christian. And so your pastor just becomes a self-help, self-help guru. Here's, here's what you do this week. Here's the three things you have to do this week. Here's the ten things you have to do this week. And you go home from church and you're like, whew, more burdens. No, that's not actually Christianity. Christianity is this. Lots of sticks, right? God loving the world through Christ. That's Christianity. Why do you go to church? Because this is where God is at giving gifts to His people, His body, the body of Christ. Because you can't be anywhere else. This is your family. This is the body of Christ. As goofy as we might look to you, this is the body of Christ. And when you hear the word of God here, when you hear the absolution, when you receive the sacraments, who's present? Jesus Jesus himself is here. When you invite someone to church, why should I go to church with you? What do you say? Well, because... Jesus comes to our church. I promise Jesus will be there. I promise he'll be there. Really? Yes. He's there every week. He loves our church. Right? Do you believe that? Yeah, that's why we're here, right? Even goofy Bible study, he shows up sometimes. So, it, it really is... Does that help? Yeah, but I mean, that's what we're up against. And so every single thing in our life is teaching us that we're the most important, that, that the buck stops here. Right? So is my marriage serving me? Well, if not, then I'll just move on. Right? Is this, is this pregnancy something I want? If not, I'll just get rid of it. Do I want to have to do this action? I mean, we, we fall in this trap all the time. We are confronted with decisions and we say, well, I can do that because I know God will have to forgive me come Sunday, so I'm good. When did you become the arbiter of what's good and bad? You get to decide? I don't think so. I think you've forgotten who God is. When you're confronted with a sinful decision, do you have any right to choose the sin? Do you? Do you have the right to sin? Do you have the right to sin? No. Who do you think you are? You belong to Christ. Do Christians sin? Is that how we live? 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My dear children, I write these things to you so that you will not sin. Not so you can sin if you want. No, you don't have the right to sin because you've been removed from sin and brought into life. How does, it, how does chapter 2, verse 2 go in 1 John? But if any of you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is the propitiation for our sins. Not just our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. See? But when we get this individualistic idea, we even make God subject to our desires. And that's, this, that's Satan tempting us to get our eyes off from Christ and put them on ourselves. This might be one of those times where you might turn the thing off. Okay. I'll edit it out. <laughs> when, when, the, you know, when you talk about the person in the boat not coming to church, yeah. you said what's, what's missing is the body of uh-huh. And then later on, we were talking about body of Christ in another way other than the sacrament or yeah yeah the body of Christ is that what you're asking how the body of Christ is used 
Yeah, the body of Christ, and in 1 Corinthians 11, you can actually see this. Um, in 1 Corinthians, okay, so if you, we don't have time to do all this, but if you go to 1 Corinthians and read 1 Corinthians 10 through 14, you're going to read about the body of Christ. The body of Christ is used in that section to both describe the church and the actual body of Christ in, with, and under the bread and wine in the sacrament. Both. They're not in competition. Okay? The body of Christ in the New Testament is a term that describes both the believers in the church and the physical body and blood of Christ in the sacrament. And I think that should be a little instructive to us about how we worship and why the sacrament is a vital part of our worship. Because it's the body of Christ, the body of Christ. This is how it's done. Is the body of Christ gathers and receives the body of Christ. Right? It's kind of like when you say word of God and you say, well, does that mean Jesus or does that mean the Bible? And I look at you and go, yeah. They're not, they're not, in, they're not in counter-distinction from one another. The proper reading of Scripture is to read the Word of God as though it's about the Word of God. His name is Jesus. So the Word of God is the inspired words about Jesus. That's what it is. Well, the, the body of Christ are those who gather around the body of Christ. We also hear the Word of God. Right? So, see how it works? So it's, it's not one or the other. It's both. And that's part of the problem is I, I can go on my boat or I don't have a boat just in case you're wondering. <laughs> I can go play golf, which I'm not very good at, but I can go do whatever I do. Go fishing, go, go for a walk, hang out with my family, whatever, right? And, and we could open our Bible and Jesus could be there and we could do Christian devotions, right? But we're, we're missing the real point of worship, which is the gathering of Christians together to hear the word of God and to receive the holy sacrament. I can't do that without all y'all. And whether you like it or not, the way God has designed it in the New Testament is that that is also done normally with a pastor present except for the week after Christmas when you have to deal with having a stinking seminarian. Oh, sorry. Oh, you did? Oh, good. A clean seminarian. Good, 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 good. Very good. Right. For this rare occasion. See, but that's the point. Is it's What didn't we have today? Communion. So we came out here early and just kind of sat here and stared at each other for 20 minutes. We're like, well, I guess it was all right, but it wasn't the fullness that it usually is. Right? And that's kind of the point. Is that day in and day out in this place, every Sunday, we are the body of Christ gathered around the body of Christ. That's the way it's supposed to be. Now, when that doesn't happen, we, we do fine. We still have the word and God is still present and we're provided for and we thank God for our seminarians who are wonderful gifts to us from God. But we also worship realizing that something's missing. The altar was bare. First thing we noticed when we walked in, what's going on? No Lord's Supper. Hmm. Okay? Your pastor is Pastor Sal. If he, if he and you guys agreed with, for someone else to do it, that'd be fine. But... Right now, the way it is, is he's the guy in charge of that. Right? That's his call. You guys just let me teach Bible class because you're nice. Okay? When you were talking earlier about the church and the body of Christ, yeah. I think when I had the luxury of going on the mission trip to Hong Kong, yeah. In the Lutheran school there that Sunday, there was a a service, a uh-huh. church service. Right. So I'm thinking of that, 
and the molars went to Africa and had the church right. service there. So this is going on all over the world, just not in America. So this is happening all times and all places. And that's part of the other thing that we're missing when you worship away from the body of Christ is that this is not just the saints gathered at our Savior in Fenton, Missouri. This is happening all over the world and throughout time. You are gathering in the same body as John the Baptizer. Right? As Abraham and Moses, Thomas, Luther, your grandparents who died in the faith, we're all one body. Right? Not because of us, but because of Christ who unites us all. Now we're back to Galatians chapter 3. For all who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And they're in Him. And that doesn't change based on time. In a billion years, you will still be the body of Christ. Right? We'll be older then, or younger, probably. But, you know, we'll still be the body of Christ. All right, number three. To where is the light coming? To the world. To the world through Jesus. Very good. Okay? So, the light is coming to the world, and the light is Jesus. So, Jesus is coming as the light of the world. Now, remember, in the Gospel of John... World is usually not a, a term that describes how would I say this? The breadth of something. It's usually described, it's usually used to describe that which is opposed to God. Usually, not always. Not talking about the world proper. Like not talking about the, Right, not talking about the, the new 12 moons around Jupiter. I'm sure Jupiter is excited about that. But, you know, that what this means is Jesus came not just to believers, but also to those who do not want him to come. For God so loved the world, right? Not just believers. He loves everyone, right? So it's not a physical scope. It's actually usually talking about the people who are opposed to Jesus or opposed to God, he comes for them too. He comes to the world. He enlightens the world. So it encompasses all of creation, but not in a physical way, but more of a, a person's way and a spiritual way. Okay? So the light is coming into the world, but now specifically it says in verse 11, he came to his own. And does your Bible have a little footnote there? Mine does. And the, the, the Lutheran Study Bible and the ESV text has a little ESV study note there for you. And it says, in the Greek it says, to his own things, that is to his own domain or to his own people. The best, the, the Greek word is simply to his own. But that word, his own or, or your own, is the phrase for what it means to go home. If you say at the end of the story and everybody went home, this is the word you would use. They all went to their own. And then home is kind of understood. So a lot of people translate this verse to say, and he came to his own house or his own household or his own people. But they did not receive him. Okay, so he came to his own house and his own people did not receive him. Something like that. Um, and people, the word people there isn't really there either. It just says, and his own did not receive him. Okay? So there's kind of the first own is usually seen as like the people group, as like Israel or, or the world. And the second one is his own people, meaning like more specifically his family, his, the Jewish nation. They did not receive him. 
Okay, so we're getting this idea the creator comes to the creation and instead of being received with pomp and circumstance and welcome banners, he's rejected. The creator, who is life and light, comes to his creation to bring life and light. And instead of being accepted and celebrating, he is rejected and killed. That's the story. Okay, do you see that? He comes to bring life and light, and instead he is rejected and killed. Because we don't want to... It'll, it'll tell us later that we don't want the light because if the light comes, it'll expose that we are actually dark. I knew a, I knew a lot. Actually, I knew quite a few people who said this. They refused to put the little Christian fish on their car because they cut people off and they drive poorly and they don't want to be a bad witness. I was like, well, why don't you just drive like a Christian? Oh, no, 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 no. I got to get to work on time. I got to... It's like, well... Okay, so you're, you're purposely going to ignore or make sure people don't think you're a Christian so you can continue to sin instead of proclaiming Christ and learning to not sin. That doesn't sound good. Right? Don't you do that all the time? When you're about to engage in sinful behavior and you just kind of hope no one's looking, instead of actually learning to live in Christ and do what pleases Him, you make sure no one catches you doing what pleases you. Eh, it's not so good. Right? The light exposes our darkness. And so instead of walking to the light and saying, please enlighten me, we say, I'm going to hide from the light so that no one sees how dark I am. That's why you want, when you walk into church, we enlighten you. We shine the light on your sin and say, how sinful exactly are you? And you say, whoa, I'm a poor, miserable sinner. Really? What does that mean? Well, I've sinned in thought, word, deed. I haven't loved God, I haven't loved neighbor. Okay? So that's part of this enlightening. Okay, number four. What do you get if you receive Jesus, though? Yeah, you get eternal life. You get to become children of God. Okay, so here's the thing. Just when, when it seems like this entire story is gloom and doom, he's sent to his own household, his own people didn't receive him, the light came, but we chose darkness instead. But, in the midst of all that, there will be some who believe. And to those who receive him, he gives the right to become the children of God. So, for those of you who believe, guess what you are? You are children of God. You are enlightened. Can the darkness take that away from you? No, because the one who is your light, the darkness cannot overcome. So if you're in Christ, you're a child of God. No one gets to say anything against that. No one can defeat that. You get to be a child of God, period. No human can take it away. And no spiritual force can take it away. Satan cannot oppose you. He's been defeated. Your Jesus wins. Right? Do you have to fear death? No. I know a guy. He does resurrections. Right? It's okay. We're okay. And this is, this is the, the beautiful part of this now is that for all those who, re- who receive him, you get to become children of God. So real quickly, I know we've got to go pretty soon, but real quickly, go to 1 John chapter 3. If you want to know what the whole gospel is about, just read 1 John. It's shorter, but it, you know, it kind of just gets, cuts to the chase here. 1 John chapter 3. 
This is a verse you should memorize. Really, 1 John 3, verses 1 through 3. You should know this. It's, it's one of the most amazing passages in the New Testament. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. See what kind... What's that? I said I know a song. Yeah, you know a song. That's right. <laughs> See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Right? See, that's what John is getting us to. And so we are. Meaning, we, and so we are children of God because God has so loved us. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Jesus. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. So there's more to the story, right? But we know that when he, meaning Jesus, appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in Jesus purifies himself just as Jesus is pure. You are a child of God because of the love and action of God in Christ. That's who you are. You don't need to love yourself. You don't need to find worth in yourself. No human can love you and make you acceptable or lovely. You don't need to try to become something in order to earn love or try to become something so that someone will love you. You are loved. You are treasured. You are a child of God. The almighty creator of the world loves you. You are his. He has made sure of that by sending his son, Jesus. That's the point of this. This says you belong to God. And nothing can separate you from that love. Okay? That's really the point of Christmas. When God came in the flesh in Jesus Christ to live, to die, to rise, to ascend, and to return, he is saying to you, you belong to me. You're mine. Your sin's forgiven. Death has been conquered. You are a child of God. Okay? And that's what the rest of the Gospel of John is going to teach us about. How did God accomplish that? How did he make you no longer a sinner, but now a child of God? How did he do that? And the answer is going to be this. Okay? Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, teach us so to receive Jesus that we trust in Him to be our Savior, Your Son, the one who conquered death in the grave for us, the one who forgives our sins, the one who is truly life and light. Teach us to live in such a way that those around us might see our lives, rejoice in Your love, and ask us about the hope that we have. We might tell them about Your love in Christ. Bless us now this day in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all.